Okay, so um, tonight we are going to start a new study, and this study will be in the New Testament book of James. And um, I'm calling this particular study Wisdom Walks This Way. And the reason is uh, that the content that we find in the book of James really builds on the idea of wisdom uh, all the way back in the book of Proverbs, as well as finding its way into how wisdom carries itself out within a community setting. So uh, you can see behind me here that this is going to be our fall study. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some various things uh, and use units. And so on the screen behind me here, uh, we're talking a little bit uh, about the introduction. And then what we're going to do is uh, we are going to see this. There we go. Um, going to use the different paragraphs that uh, are in the book of James, and that should be on your handout, so you can see what's coming uh, over the next eight weeks. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the nature of source, the community's wisdom, uh, how to live out an active faith that has consistent love, uh, what do, do the deeds of faith look like, uh, how we uh, watch our tongue, uh, and then there is uh, some examples that James will give of arrogance, and then the end is going to be about uh, community solidarity and how to uh, continue to build this new movement that you find in, uh, in the beginning stages of the church. So having said that, you can follow along and read the paragraph as we do the study from week to week. So tonight, we're only going to look at one verse, and that's chapter 1, verse 1, where we are introduced to the epistle, and this epistle is introduced with these words, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. And that's a pretty uh, typical uh, type of a greeting for a letter. And then uh, what we find is the primary content that's going to kind of segue through the rest of the epistle is found, I believe, down in verse five of chapter one, where if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And so the epistle begins with this opportunity to look at life through a lens of wisdom. And if we feel that we lack wisdom, we should feel free to ask God to give to us the wisdom that we need. And so having said that, what we're going to do is just give you an introduction tonight to the book. Now, on the um, screen behind me here, and, and I'm sharing the screen uh, also on the Zoom. Uh, hopefully what you will see here is the way the New Testament uh, books are structured. So in this particular slide here, there is categories of what it means to uh, think about the New Testament. So you have what I'll call the historical books, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. They give to us a kind of overview of the life of Jesus and the beginning of the church. Then what you have that complements that storyline is a set of different letters that uh, are addressing usually specific issues. And what we find is there is two categories of letters. There are those that are written to a certain group of people. And those are the books that are titled like uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's who the letter's being written to. And then there are other letters that describe who the letter is from. So you have First and Second Peter and First and Second and Third John. And our study over the next eight weeks is 
James. And so this letter comes from James and uh, he is the half brother of Jesus and he is writing out of a context of very early um, part of uh, the beginning of the church. Now, the last part of the 27 letter uh, books, rather, of the New Testament are called the pastoral epistles. They are written to individuals, specific individuals, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And uh, these letters are from the Apostle Paul uh, to specific people that he wants them to, uh, to act upon uh, certain requests that he's making. So in the case of First and Second Timothy, he's uh, getting Timothy ready for his departure so that uh, Timothy can continue to pastor the church at Ephesus. Uh, Titus, a similar type of thing, uh, uh, written that for his uh, leading uh, the church on an island of Crete, and Philemon is written to welcome back a slave owner, uh, I mean a slave to a slave owner. So most of the letters of the New Testament are written by the Apostle Paul, but there are these few that are uh, written by individuals addressing specific situations, and each of these situations um, kind of dictate the nature of the subject matter. So our challenge in the next eight weeks in the book of James is to try to figure out what he's really trying to accomplish with this letter, because just like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, the book of James is not easily outlined. It's, and what I mean by that is there's a cornucopia of different topics that he addresses, and it doesn't follow, like the Apostle Paul, more of a linear thought process from point A to point B to point C. So James is, seems a little bit more sporadic in some of the topics that he covers, but I, all, I do think all of them are related to wisdom. What does wisdom look like? How do we uh, approach life with wisdom? How do we carry out the gift of wisdom that God gives to us? And uh, we'll touch upon some parts of Proverbs where they uh, coordinate together with the uh, epistle of James, as well as uh, talk a little bit about uh, some individuals that uh, were individuals that were using wisdom properly and others who did not. So there's some characters that are mentioned in the book of James as well. Now, the best way to get an overview of this particular uh, book is, uh, again, the Bible Project does a great job of summarizing a book in about six or seven minute time. And so in your handout, you'll see kind of a a picture drawing, and that picture drawing is such that it breaks down the different components of the book of James, and what it does is it helps us kind of follow along as that picture is built uh, one section at a time. So uh, if, uh, if you do not hear the video uh, on the Zoom, um, what I encourage you to do is to go to the bibleproject.com, find the book of James, and just watch that video. It'll coordinate with this particular diagram. I think it does a very good job of summarizing. So I wanna show you that video at this time, okay? The letter of James, or at least that's his name in English, if you look in the Greek, you will see that his name is Jakobos, which translates his Hebrew name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob, and that's what we're going to call him in this video. Now, there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus' inner circle of the twelve disciples, but this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters. After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, Jesus' half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. It was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. 
This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who were living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1 through 9. Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs, and so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy-to-memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The body of the book is in chapters 2 through 5, which consist of 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. And altogether, they don't develop one main idea in a linear way. Each teaching kind of stands alone and concludes with a catchy one-liner. But all of these teachings are connected through key repeated words and themes. It's really cool. At the opening of the book's body, there are two teachings. First, about favoritism and love. Jacob exposes how we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't, usually because they're needy. Jacob says this is the opposite of love as Jesus defined it. He goes on to show what genuine faith does and does not look like. So if someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects people who are needy or poor, this person's faith is dead, he says. Their actions betray what they say they believe, and genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teachings. Now, scattered throughout the body of the book, we find three different places where Jacob develops Jesus' own teaching about our words. So, with the same mouth, we unleash pain upon people and then go offer praise to God. So messed up. And also, we judge people and then go talk badly about them behind their backs. And we also all tend to distort the truth to our own advantage. How we talk about people opens up a window into our hearts and our core values. Our words tell the real truth about our character. Jacob also believes that God's kingdom community, as Jesus taught about it, is the kind of place where the divisions created by wealth and social status are dismantled. So he warns first about the arrogance that wealth can create in people who believe it will be around forever. He says, no, your wealth will one day rot just like you. In contrast, God's people are to live with patience and hope for Jesus' return to set all things right. And this should inspire a life of faith-filled prayer. Now this part of the book, all of these teachings, they're so powerful and there's way more than we have time for in this video. But seriously, read all of them and slowly. Now, placed in front of these 12 wise teachings is the introductory chapter. It's a flowing stream of wise teachings and one-liners, and they're designed to sum up the main ideas of the entire book. This chapter actually introduces you to all the key words and themes that you're going to meet in chapters 2 through 5. Jacob opens by saying that he knows from personal experience life is hard. He was martyred, after all, not long after writing this letter. But he believes that life's trials and hardships are actually paradoxical gifts that can produce endurance and shape our character. God can do amazing work inside of us in the midst of suffering and help us become perfect and complete. Now, that word perfect, it's really important for Jacob. He repeats it seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek, this word refers to 
wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've received from Jesus. Jacob knows that most of us actually live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people to make them whole. And it begins with wisdom, the ability to see my hardships through a new perspective. God will generously give this kind of wisdom to people who ask for it in faith without doubting God's character. And when we realize our humble and frail place before God, we are forced to choose between anxiety or trust. And true wisdom means choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. So if it's poverty that's forcing you into hard times in life, Jacob says, try and view it as a gift that forces you to trust in God alone. And besides, wealth is fleeting. It's all going to pass away like wildflowers in the summer heat. And so when we do fall into hard times, don't accuse God. Rather, let your circumstances teach you what Jesus taught about God's character, that the Father is generous, that he's there to meet us in our pain, and that he's trustworthy. It's this God who through Jesus has given us new birth to become new kinds of humans who can face their suffering with total trust in the Father, just like Jesus did. And this new humanity is something we discover when we not only listen to God's word, but do what it says. Jacob calls God's word here the perfect Torah of freedom. He's referring here to the greatest command of the Torah as passed on to us through Jesus, that he freed us to love God and love our neighbor. And Jacob shows practically what that kind of love looks like. It means speaking to others in a kind and loving way. It means serving the poor, and it means living with wholehearted devotion to God alone. Now you can see how this opening chapter contains all the key words and ideas explored more deeply in the 12 teachings of chapters 2 through 5. Jacob immersed himself in the wisdom of Jesus and of the Proverbs, and he's given us a great gift in this book of his own wisdom. This is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that is what the book of James, or Jacob, is all about. So that introduction to uh, the book of James is going to help us along the way to understand some of the things that we'll find in the book. But before we look at some of the content in the book of James, I think uh, what we need to do is get a little bit of backdrop information that will help us down the line uh, to kind of understand some of the passages. Now, this is an adventure for me. I have never, except for New Testament survey classes that I have taught, I've never really done an in-depth study on the book of James. Uh, I preached maybe only a handful of sermons from the book of James over the years, but I've never really looked at it from front cover to back. And so uh, I'm looking forward to kind of getting deeper into the book and figuring out a little bit about uh, what the early church really uh, saw as they came off the heels of the ministry of Jesus. And what's really interesting, I think, is since James is the half-brother of Jesus, in many ways, he carries on the lineage of Jesus firsthand. Um, we know the disciples did that as well, but think of James as part of the family circle, the inner circle, that he knew Jesus inside and out from the time he was a little boy. So uh, there's a lot of things that are packed into this book, and I do think one of the things that we'll see is that uh, the letter of James is going to introduce us to some various things that I think will help us understand uh, what the early church emphasized in their walk with God. So our introduction uh, is such that we want to just talk a little bit about the letter of James as a multifaceted picture of the way wisdom works. And what I mean by that is uh, those who follow the path of wisdom uh, are individuals that demonstrate their faith in action. So one of the things that you're going to find in uh in the book of James is 
there will be some contradiction at times with the Apostle Paul. It seems as though the Apostle Paul emphasized the uh, justification by faith alone element of our faith, whereas James talks about justification by works, that our faith has to produce something that's provable. And so this has, in many ways, kind of put um, these two uh, authors kind of at odds with each other in the sense that uh, James is making significant contributions that the Apostle Paul does not do so in, in generality. When the Apostle Paul makes specific commandments, it's usually directed not to the church as a whole, but to usually a church, a particular church that's having some issues. So uh, the emphasis is going to be on wisdom. It's going to be multifaceted. And one of the things that we're going to find is that it will run in parallel to some of the things that we find in the book of Proverbs. Now, since uh, James will emphasize justification by works. Um, as you might anticipate, uh, Martin Luther had a difficult, uh, a, a difficult uh, ac acceptance of the book as part of the New Testament canon. So Martin Luther uh, was uh, with the Apostle Paul all the way. And in fact, Martin Luther would rather not have had James in the New Testament canon. Um, I do think one of the things that we find, though, is that James and Paul, in a sense, will complement each other as two sides of the same coin of faith. Yes, there's that element of belief. There is that element of God doing his work of forgiveness. But then there's also the other side that the genuineness of our faith is, is shown by the way we treat other people, how we use our mouth, how we use our speech, how we, um, how we accept other people and do not show favoritism and all that type of thing. So uh, James will identify himself as the author in verse one. I just read that for you a moment ago. And as the author, what we find taking place is that he is an individual that um, will be part of um, a group of men that carry the same name. And they all kind of share a commonality. And what I mean by that is the, uh, the name James is the New Testament form of the Old Testament name Jacob. And as we all know, Jacob is the father of the nation of Israel. His name is changed from Jacob after he wrestles with God to Israel. So here on the screen is a couple of things that I think is important to keep in mind. The author of this letter could not have been James, that is the brother of John, the first followers of Jesus. You remember that Jesus called James and John to follow them. They were fishermen. Um, what we do, we see that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. But what we know by church history is James, the brother of John, was an individual that lost his life pretty early. In fact, probably around AD 44, he was one of the earliest individuals that passed away and became part of the martyrdom uh, group that, um, that would give their life in following Jesus. Um, there are two other men mentioned in the New Testament, James, but they didn't have the influence. They didn't have the stature of the brother of Jesus. So more than likely, uh, the writer of this particular book is probably James, the half-brother of Jesus. And there's probably a few reasons for that. Let me just kind of go through them. Number one, James is one of the individuals that saw the resurrection of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 15, there is a listing of various people that first saw Jesus. And James is specifically mentioned in verse 7. And 
in that particular designation, I think being singled out as an individual that saw Jesus, we are already beginning to see he, he played an important role in the early upstart of the church. Secondly, Paul in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9 will call James the pillar of the church or one of the pillars of the church. Uh, James is Jewish and he will eventually take a leadership position uh, in the uh, church in Jerusalem, which will play a significant role in allowing Gentiles to come in to the church. Thirdly, Paul on his post-conversion visit to Jerusalem. So you remember Paul knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, came to know Christ. Not long after he came to know Christ in a personal way, he made a trip to Jerusalem. And one of the first individuals that he singled out was James. And you can find that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. Now, as Paul is beginning to wind up his missionary journey, uh, in one, we're told that he goes back again uh, to uh, visit um, uh, Jerusalem, and he again will single out James uh, to visit him. So what we're finding here is James plays early on kind of a very important role in the establishment of the church in Jerusalem, but he also is writing to a wider audience. So in verse one, he is writing to a group of people that are part of the among the nations. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, these might be scattered Jews, or he might be refer referring to the church as a whole that includes Gentiles as well. Now, number five here, when Peter was released from prison, he told his friends to go tell James. So in this miraculous deliverance that is found in Acts 12, verse 17, when Peter is freed from prison, miraculously, the first thing that he wanted to do was get word to James that he had been released from prison. Again, James just kind of plays this important role that we see in the early stages of the New Testament. We're going to look at this in a moment, but James is the leader. He is the primary leader in the church in Jerusalem, which means he's going to play an important role in a thing called the Jerusalem Council. Jerusalem Council is after Paul's first missionary journey. Um, there are some Gentiles that come to faith, and all of a sudden, the early Jewish believers in Jesus began to ask the question, do these Gentiles need to become Jews first before they can become followers of Jesus. In other words, do they need to keep the law? And number two, do they need to get circumcised? So the church will convene a council together, and it is called the Jerusalem Council, and it is there that they discuss whether or not uh, Gentiles need to keep the Torah they need to keep all the ceremonial laws, and they need to keep the sign of the Mosaic Covenant of being circumcised. And so we'll look at that in just a moment. But it is James that heads up that council, okay? Then James also um, is, it's interesting in that one chapter letter of Jude, uh, James is mentioned there as well. Jude identifies himself as the author of both his letter uh, by using the designation that he is the brother of James. So there are two letters in the New Testament that are written by the half-brothers of Jesus, okay, James and Jude. But it's interesting that uh, Jude, instead of just saying Jude, the brother of Jesus, he says Jude, the brother of James, which is an interesting designation uh, in Jude 1 1. Then uh, finally, James, uh, church history tells us, was martyred in AD 62. Now that's not just church history, 
but it is also uh, Jewish history as well. There is a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus that gives an account of a lot of the early uh, history of the church and other books. And what we find is that in his book called Antiquities uh, 29 and 1 is a section that talks a little bit about how James was martyred. And, and so you have external proof of the church tradition that James is one of the earlier martyrs. So the two Jameses, James, the brother of John, is uh, dies early on, and James, the brother of Jesus, dies early on as well, which means that the book of James is probably one of the earliest books of the New Testament. Okay, so again, when you look at your New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, uh, John, Acts. That gives the history of Jesus and the history of uh, the early church. Then you come to the big books, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Well, those books come later, chronologically. Uh, the smaller books are placed toward the end of the New Testament, uh, which is unfortunate because we tend to think chronologically in the West, right? So when we read it, we think, oh gosh, this is all the way at the end of the New Testament. It must have been a very late book. It isn't. James is probably the first, if not the book of Galatians. There's a close call on that. One of those two is the first book of the New Testament. So we're looking at very, very early material on the early church. So let me stop right there and see if you have some thoughts or some questions that you would like to um, to ask at this point or make a comment on. James's parents would be Mary and Joseph, possibly Joseph, Mary and Joseph. But since we believe in the virgin conception wow, okay. of Jesus, he would only be the half-brother of Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. Okay. Did you catch that question? Same mother. What's that, Martin? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's the question that's being asked for, uh, for you guys online. Um, is did, did Jesus being the half brother of James, um, did he have the genes of Mary? Well, that's a big theological discussion. <laughs> um, and that is, um, if he did have the genes of Mary, then, um, some theologians believe that he would have been a sinner by birth, like everyone else. Now that's a, that is a theological position, but if you don't believe people are born sinners, but become sinners by their choices and stuff like that, he could carry the genes of Mary and, and, and still be sinless. But that is a theological discussion that goes on in scholarly circles as to, uh, did, did Jesus carry the DNA of Mary? And of course, yeah, he did not get it from Joseph, right? Yeah, the virgin birth. Yeah. But virgin conception. And so the question then becomes, um, if he did carry the DNA of Mary, okay, now follow this logically here. If Jesus carried the DNA of Mary, then Mary must have been sinless as well. Of course, you just kind of keep going back, don't you? Mm. What about the grandma and the great-grandma and that type of thing? But um, in certain theological circles, um, there is several different beliefs in regard to Mary. And she was sinless as well. Uh, some groups believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, um, that type of thing. So 
that's getting into some of the Catholic doctrine. Um, and there's variances there as well. But um, the, the answer to your question, or at least to Beth's question, is how was James and Jesus related? They had the same mother. Okay. Then that's why they're, they're uh, half-brothers. That is a great question. Any others? Okay. So it seems as though the book of James probably was written before 50 AD. If Josephus's account is accurate in the martyrdom of James, then what you have is um, a very early departure of James, and therefore his writing is very early as well. But we can take note of that also from these other um, clues. So it's distinctively Jewish in nature, the way um, the early church probably began predominantly as Jewish before uh, Gentile converts. But it's reflected in the book of James. It has a very Jewish flavor to it has a lot of concepts of the Torah that's uh, found in the book of James, as well as that Old Testament concept of wisdom that goes back to the book of Proverbs. So in the video that you just watched, Tim Mackey, who puts those videos together, uh, talks about how there is this relationship between the book of James and the early chapters of Proverbs. And we'll, we'll look at that a little bit as we go through this. Secondly, it reflects kind of a simple church order. So what I mean by that is when the early church on the day of Pentecost is born, obviously um, there is no hierarchy or structure in place at that point. That is found later in the New Testament where there's the introduction of certain offices in the church, the hierarchy of bishops, that type of thing. But here in the book of James, you have the mention of elders in chapter 5, verse 14, uh, in that passage that talks about if a person is ill, let him call upon the elders of the church so that that individual might be anointed with oil. Uh, there's also a mention of teachers in chapter 3, verse 1. So these couple of leadership positions that is found in the book of James is elders and teachers, but you don't find deacons, you don't find deaconesses, you don't find bishops. Uh, it, it seems to be very early in the development of, of, of church leadership. There is also interesting, in light of the fact that uh, James is going to be the head of this church to talk about the necessity of circumcision in Gentile conversion. But he makes no reference in this book to circumcision. And since it's referred to um, quite often in the book of James in terms of the Torah, why isn't the sign of the covenant ever mentioned in the book of James? Probably because the letter is written before even uh, Paul uh, is finished with his first missionary journey and the gossip gets back to the Jerusalem church about Gentiles coming to faith. So this letter is probably written prior to that. Other than, otherwise, what I think we'd see is the subject of circumcision probably would come up in the book, but it's nowhere to be found. Okay. Uh, there's also a Greek term um, in chapter two, verse two, uh, that's where we get the, the uh, term synagogue. Um, and so the church is still kind of connected to the hip, to the Jewish synagogue at this point in time. It's not like they have broke apart from the synagogue structure. What it seems as though is that the synagogue was the place where these people of faith were trying to live out their faithfulness to the Torah, right? When they come to faith in Jesus, it never occurred to them 
that they would break away from the synagogue. That was their place. That was their assembly. That was where they met for worship. Later, they'll break away. But what we find is that's not until the Apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, begin to establish some house churches. Okay, so you'll see these house churches spring up in his travels. But prior to that, what we find is that the church began its in its beginning stages in the synagogue. Okay, so and that's reflected in the book as well. Have some thoughts there, comments there. So James is a wisdom uh, book. It's wisdom writing. And the way that comes across is by way of exhortation. So one of the things that you're going to find in the book of James is there is a lot of commandments that are given. In fact, the book of James has 108 verses in it, and 59 of those 108, so more than half the book, are moral exhortations. Okay, that he is uh, laying on to the people that he's writing to. So what is he trying to do? He's trying early on to get the early followers of Jesus, which probably are primarily Jewish at this point, to move beyond keeping the letter of the law to obeying the spirit of the law and to listen to the teachings of Jesus and what we find is the teachings of Jesus then becomes the fulfillment of what the law intended. So what we find here is that he's trying to get these people to live up to the profession that they made in becoming Christians. Now, that's easier said than done. And here's why. Because when Jewish people began to come to faith in Christ, other Jewish people that did not become followers of Jesus would begin to show some prejudice. They would begin to show some small elements of persecution. There would certainly have been some social ramifications uh, that these individuals have left uh, the Jewish faith. So the temptation would be, and I think you find this in the book of Hebrews as well, the temptation would be for a Jewish follower uh, to become a secret follower of Jesus. I really believe in Jesus in my heart, but I'm going to keep all the external um, elements of Judaism. That way I play it safe. Uh, I don't suffer persecution. Does that make sense to everybody? So James is calling them out in some ways. No, you got to live up to your profession of being a Christ follower and you're not to hide. You got to burn your fig leaves. If, you know what I'm saying? You, 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 you can't hide anymore. You're a follower of Jesus. That means you follow the royal law, which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's a kind of wisdom. James, there's a certain wide range of wisdom writing that were produced in the Near East. And there are Jewish wisdom writings that there is some close association with. Um, there is a writer, a Jewish writer, by the name of Ben Sira uh, that uh, writes about wisdom. Uh, there's an apocryphal book uh, that's called the Book of Wisdom. It's not in the Protestant Bible. Uh, so this theme is found uh, very early on in the first century. James resembles that are committed to the world of and uh, the structure is found uh, that he's going to use kind of a proverbial approach to call these people to uh, their commitment uh, to the Torah, but eventually to the one who is the fulfillment of the Torah, and that's Jesus. So a couple more things, and then we'll be done for tonight. So. Um, to ask the question, where did James get his wisdom? He's a wisdom writer. Where did he get it? 
Well, first of all, he grew up with Jesus. So one of the things that you're going to find is observing the life of Jesus for his whole life, not just a three-year window like the disciples. I am sure that he saw wisdom embodied in the person of Jesus, as well as the teachings of Jesus. Um, it is believed that Jesus was a part of a big family. Uh, he had four brothers and two sisters, and the boys were given names that are rooted in the Jewish tradition. So James is a form of Jacob. And what we find is that in the ministry of Jesus, um, they understood, uh, the entire family, I think, understood themselves in terms of their commitment to the rule of God. And the rule of God is reflected in a variety of ways uh, in the Torah. But when Jesus comes along and says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you remember how he does that in the Sermon on the Mount? All of a sudden, the family begins to back off a little bit. And in various places in the New Testament, one of the things that you're going to find is the family of Jesus began to wonder whether he's gone off the deep end a little bit. And it is believed that James, Jude, and his other siblings were not initially followers of Jesus, um, but became followers of Jesus after the resurrection. So um, what we do know, though, is they probably kept pretty close ties on Jesus. Um, just like we do our own family members, one of the things that we, as, as we, you know, continue to follow what's happening in each other's lives and family, we understand um, the progress of uh, and maturing of our kids and, and siblings and that type of thing. And what we find is, I think Jesus' family probably while they probably did not follow him footstep by footstep like the disciples did, they kept close ties as to what Jesus was up to and what Jesus was teaching. And therefore, when Jesus taught a lot of the things that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters five through seven, you are going to find that those teachings there were probably repeated quite often in various settings. I don't think the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon, single sermon. I think it is a summary of a lot of the things that Jesus taught in various settings and, and on various occasions. So it doesn't surprise me that in the epistle of James, much of it is going to sound very close to the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew 5 through 7, you have Jesus teaching, but James teaching is a mirror of that. So if you look at this here, and obviously we're not doing this tonight, but if you ever sat down with a Bible and you have one thumb in the book of James and you had your other thumb in the Sermon on the Mount and you flip back and forth, what you would find is there is a constant reference uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, which is obviously earlier, right, than James's teaching. And what we find is James is reflecting a lot of that. So if you read one verse and then went to the cross-reference in the Sermon on the Mount, what I think you'll find is, wow, this is very, very similar material. Okay. That makes sense to everybody? Yeah, yes. That's right. So what, what Esty said is the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, Matthew's a later book than the epistle of James. What, what is being paralleled at this point is the oral tradition of Jesus' teachings. Because the book of Matthew is not complete at this point. It's not like he's looking in the book of Matthew and copying. So what James is doing is he's listening in his mind to all that Jesus taught, right? 
Matthew will later summarize it in his gospel, but he remembers and it's ruminating inside of his mind all that Jesus taught and he writes it down. And later when Matthew uh, writes this summary of Jesus teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, what you're going to find is they're very similar uh, things uh, in parallel. Great question. Any other questions? So just a couple more slides. So James is a picture of an individual in an emerging movement. This emerging movement is on the heels of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what's interesting is in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, you will find James and Mary and others in the company of the 11 disciples. So um, it's not like the 11 disciples um, are hunkered down uh, by themselves. It seems as though there's other people that have joined them, and Mary and James, and I believe Jude probably as well, are a part of that group. Now, what happens early on is James becomes a leader in the church and the Jerusalem, uh, the church in Jerusalem. Um, and it seems as though his ascendancy to being a leader there is not based upon his kinship, but it is based upon the fact, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 7, is one of the earliest people that saw the resurrection of Jesus. Um, the resurrection of Jesus is the one that becomes a criteria uh, that allows the apostles to carry on their ministry, but others that are not a part of the original 12 also have that same authority. And so Jesus will appear to James, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and he, like the others, received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and now he understands Jesus in light of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring, and um, what we find is that Jesus is not just his older brother. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that has come to fulfill God's uh, purpose of establishing his kingdom on earth. Now, that will be harder than what you think. And um, I want you to turn, I just want to look at a couple of verses. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. So we haven't really text the whole lot tonight, but this is just background. But I think understand. So after Paul finishes his first missionary journey, there's some Gentiles that come to faith. And when they come to faith, um, the question is, how Jewish do they need to become? And so in Acts chapter 15, verses 13 to 17, this, uh, this convention uh, is convened. And, and if you look at verse 12, it, here's how it goes. It says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from among the Gentiles. The word for the prophet are in agreement after this After this, I will return and build the images. If you look at the right outside our window, is there a song? Seek the Lord and even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things grow too long ago. Now, James is going to speak up and give his opinion right here. Not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat strangled, uh, from the meat strangled animals sent from God. For the law of Moses 
escaped in every city from the earliest times and is wet in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So notice here, James, he is fully committed to the Torah. He's fully committed to the law, but he sees God doing a new movement. And in this emerging movement, God is not requiring Gentiles to become Jews, but he that at least these uh, Jews, um, uh, rather these Gentiles, should be sensitive to some of the more essential subjects of the law. And he, he mentions them here, food polluted by idols, the meat of blood. In other words, that is, that is more of a don't give offense to the Jewish people. Uh, and it's an attempt at building a bond between the Jews and the Gentiles. We'll come back to uh, Acts chapter 15 in our study of James, but I wanted you to see that because he needs to make a decision. This is an early emerging movement that is becoming followers of Jesus. Later, Paul will call uh, this movement the body of Christ. But what we find is that in this emerging movement, James has to struggle with how to keep the law while following Jesus and yet incorporate Gentiles into this new movement without offending really fully dedicated Jewish people who are committed wholeheartedly to the, uh, to the Torah. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. All right. One more and then we'll be mm -hmm. done. So what are the circumstances of this composition? Um, it's really difficult to know. As you saw in the video, one of the things that is mentioned is these all seem to be kind of like isolated little subjects of teaching. So it's kind of hard to piece together the circumstances. But in verse one of chapter one, the earliest thing that we have, James says, He's a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So is he talking about a group of Jewish people, a diaspora that is scattered into other places? Or is this symbolic of the larger church as a whole? Well, there's disagreement on that, obviously, like there is on a lot of things. So... Uh, James is writing to actual Jewish people, or some scholars believe, though they may see this as a literal reference to Jewish Christians, it may refer to Christians that are following this emerging movement that's now beginning to spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. So ultimately, James will have to single out Jewish believers. Uh, in light of the Jerusalem Council, not to impose the burden of the law. So if that is the case, some scholars believe that maybe James is writing to the church as a whole, wherever it has expanded to this point. Now, remember, this is early on. It doesn't mean it's all the way to Philippi and Corinth and those areas that Paul traveled later on his missionary journeys. But it does go out beyond the uh, city of Jerusalem and the area of Judea. So let's close up tonight. This address probably is, a sim is symbolic of a religious location, Jerusalem, in which 12 tribes and uh, are believers. And much like the history of the nation of Israel, what we find is that they were scattered throughout much of their history. So will early Christians be scattered and later they will be persecuted as well. So it's kind of a spiritual diaspora within a hostile world that is unsettling their faith and it's going to test their allegiance to God. Now that makes some sense because the first subject matter that we're going to look at next week is on, in verse 2 of chapter 1. Joy, my sister, when you think trials many times. So first thing out of James' mouth is about trials. So they must be going through something 
very early on. We'll try to figure out what that is next week, okay? So James is going to offer wisdom to kind of help secure this community in their embattled faith. Even though it's early on, they're going to have to reach deep. They're going to have to ask for wisdom, and they're going to have to find courage to continue to carry on in their walk with Christ. Does that make sense to everybody? Any questions? Have I confused you anywhere? No. No? no? Okay. So that's an introduction to the book. Next week, we will take a look uh, at um, this. Um, we will take a look at James chapter one, verse two through 27. Okay, that's what we're going to do next Wednesday night. So if you have a chance to read that uh, before next week, you'll have a head start on what we're going to talk about. Okay. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. All right. Any closing uh, questions or comments? If not, we will call it an evening, okay? Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, you're welcome. We'll see you guys soon. Okay, nice. Bye -bye.